0: Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Psalm 95. Beautiful day to gather in the house of God and worship the Lord. Right after the morning worship service, we're going to have a baptismal meeting. If you or a child or grandchild are interested in baptism, we're going to meet in the conference room right after the worship service, so uh, be sure to join us there. How many of you remember to move your clock forward this morning? All right. Woo! Looks unanimous, I think. All right. Uh, oh, I need to, I uh, want to announce uh, our new children's director this morning. Hold on here. I got her name here. Hold on. Oh, there it is. Stephanie Edgar.
1: Stephanie. Woo!
0: There we go. And on Tuesday at 11 o'clock, if you'd like to bring your child by or children here at the church, she's going to open up the uh, youth room upstairs in the DFC and and bring them by. Maybe we'll have some pizza or something. They can play some games and have a a good time together this Tuesday spring break for Mesquite schools, I know. And so bring them by and they'll have a good time. Stephanie will be here. All right, I'm going to ask Ron to open us up in our invocation prayer.
2: let us pray our father we're so grateful for the blessings that you've given us and as we come here today to worship you we ask that you be with us and those who are tuned in uh, and just bless us fill our hearts fill our souls with your presence and be with us as we worship you in psalm hymn and spiritual songs the word your word and prayer and father Uh, Just thank you for your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: Please stand and join us in singing How Majestic Is Your Name.
0: It comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Would you join with me? Mark 8, 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the word of God. Please be seated this morning as we go to the Lord in our our prayers. Um, We want to continue to pray for Joan Williams' husband, Richard. He's on hospice. He's at home. Edith Smith is recovering at uh, Mesquite Rehab. Uh, Rudy Martinez is at Baylor Rehab and recovering. And uh, Joan is at home. Uh, B.J. Smith is at home as well. And Glenda Burgess is here, actually. She's on the list, and her story evidently went pretty good. Yes. And so we're glad that you're here, Glenda. Amen. Our Those living in our senior living facilities, um, Flo Smith, Wanda Anderson, Lorraine Bellringer, Tony Myrick. And then uh, I got news yesterday, Gail Walschlager is at uh, Medical Cities at 75 and Forest, and she certainly needs your prayers. Um, she's having a, a spell turned backwards, so gone backwards a little bit, so pray for Gail. And then our homebound members are Dudley Perry, Cindy Bellmeyer, and Bill Guzzi. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name, because your name is above all names. How awesome are your deeds, and how great are your works. The psalmist says, the heavens declare your glory, and the skies proclaim the work of your hands. And, Father, when we look at the world and the world events, we just see more and more the signs of Christ's return. It's getting closer and closer. The stage is set. The players are in place. We just wait. We're waiting, Father, for you to give the Lord that uh, moment to come and call us up out of here to be with you. Father, may we live every moment in light that Christ could come back today. We lift our voice in praise to our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, you established him as King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day we look forward to that day when he comes. Father, we give thanks for the many blessings that you pour down on us every day. We thank you for the joy of family, we thank you for the love of a church, and the countless many other good things we enjoy every day. We do want to lift up those who need that healing touch today. We pray for each one and you know their name you know their, their need and we pray for them for their strength and health each and every day Father we also want to pray for the men and women who serve in our country in the military we pray for Omar Silva Sean Carnes Colin Graves Adna Mauricio Tyler McCarty Coges Joshua Davis Nathan Hayes Colby Hayes Devin Guzman Matilda Pritchett and Jason Maxey. Father, thank you for their commitment and their service to our country. And we pray for our police officers and firefighters and others who risk their lives every day for our safety. Father, we pray that you'll help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And Father, we pray that you will help leading us in sharing the good news of salvation to our loved ones and those around us. Today, we Father, we trust your promises. We rejoice in your faithfulness. We hope in your word. We believe in your Son, and we rest in your grace. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Christ is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. But we also want to remember that not only was he the atoning sacrifice, he was the priest, and he offered himself for our sins.
2: But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Let us pray. Our Father, it is through your Son that we have our salvation. It is through his blood shed on the cross that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And Father, as we gather around this table today, in memory of that death and that sacrifice and that blessing, that he did for us we ask you to be with each of us as we partake of these emblems may we do so in a manner that is pleasing in your sight in christ's name we pray amen
0: for i received from the lord that which i also delivered unto you that the lord jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me
3: One day we will see Jesus face to face, but now we see him through the eyes of our heart. Will you join me in saying, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. To see you
2: from the big uh, book of Hebrews again and when Christ appeared I oh, was the wrong one. Sorry. try this one. through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of the lips that gives thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices god is pleased let us pray our father we thank you for the many blessings you've given us uh, through this pandemic This church has remained strong, this congregation faithful. And, Father, as as you've given to us, it's time for us to give back to you a portion of what that which has been given. And, Father, we ask that these funds be used to further your kingdom here abroad and that they will be used in a manner that would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: number of years ago, and I'm not going to say how many years, uh, I was getting ready to go to Philmont, which is a Boy Scout camp out in New Mexico, and in order to go on this trip, which was going to be 10 nights, 11 days of backpacking through the New Mexico mountains, we had to get ready, so we had to figure out how to pack our backpacks, We had to figure out how to work as a group when cooking our meals and hiking down the trail. We had to get in shape so that our legs wouldn't give out, you know, five miles into the trip. We ended up doing somewhere between 70 and 100 miles of backpacking over those days. I don't exactly remember how much. And at one point, there was this mountain, which was the highest mountain within the Boy Scout camp, and it was 12,000 plus feet. And to get there, you had to work as a team to get up, and you would take breaks together, and you would encourage one another on the way up, but it was hard. The entire process was hard, going from starting the training till you finally got to the top of the mountain, you come down off the mountain, you get back to base camp, and you are done. In fact, for a lot of the the groups, they come through this one path, and over the, the path, there's this board that reads, you made it. And you're just thinking, "Thank you, I'm done." And you get a little plaque that says, "I hiked Philmont, or I made it," or you know, you can do all these little things. But midway through that trip was that one peak, that one mountaintop. And as you come up, and you're you're seeing all the landscape out before you, and you get up to that mountaintop, and then you see everything on the other side as well, and everything just expands out before you, and you have that mountaintop peak experience. And that's what we're going to talk about today, but not for the Boy Scouts, but for a couple of the disciples. And what that meant for them, what that meant for uh, them afterwards, and what that is going to mean for us. So if we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 1, which might seem a little odd if you open your Bibles. Uh, It's page 714 in your pew Bible, if you're using that one. But we're going to start in verse 1, and in the Pew Bible, and in a lot of Bibles, verse 1 is part of the previous section, and then our chapter for today would begin in verse 2. I'm going to go ahead and include one in there, because I think it ties together. So, here's verse 1, and he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, they're sitting there saying, what is going on? What's getting ready to happen? Some of you are not going to taste death, which implies some of them will taste death before they see the kingdom. And so scholars have debated about what this passage means. Is this talking about what we're getting ready to talk about, the transfiguration? Is this talking about the resurrection? Is this talking about the ascension? Is this talking about when the church is fully the church? And Judaism has nothing else left to it because the temple's been destroyed uh, 40 years later after this event. What are they talking about? And my guess, and I'll bet you lunch and not a whole lot else because I'm not entirely sure. But my guess is that because it is right here within this passage, because it happens, and because Mark ties it in with some words that he's talking about the transfiguration. And three of the disciples are going to see Jesus in his divine glory prior to what's coming next. So let's take a look at the first bulletin point in your bulletin. The veil is temporarily lifted. We are going to see Jesus in his full glory. The disciples are going to get a a glimpse, a snapshot, a preview, if you will, of what's getting ready to happen. When Jesus returns or when Jesus is resurrected and he comes into his full glory but let's go on to verse two and this is where the story really starts now it says after six days well that's after six days is what happened just after everything else we just saw and um what we've got here is everything that's just happened has been uh, that Peter is, uh, the disciples are saying, uh, you're, some people say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, Peter declares you are the Christ, like we read earlier. And then Jesus begins to teach his disciples, okay, here's what's going to happen. The leaders of our nation, the leaders of the nation that's supposed to be following God, they're going to reject me, and they're going to kill me, and I will rise again, And Peter says, oh, well, hold on, Jesus, you got that wrong. That ain't going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus gives his famous rebuke of of Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And if we tie that back to Jesus' temptation, which I believe Scott did last week, of uh, Jesus is being tempted to not go through with what he's getting ready to go through, with the death and resurrection, But Peter says, don't do it. And Jesus says, yeah, get behind me. And then he says, I tell you the truth. There's some standing here who will not see, taste of death before they see the kingdom. And so that's where we're at. Six days later, after all of this has occurred, Jesus takes his three closest disciples. Now, remember, Jesus had a whole bunch of disciples. There's a whole plethora of people following Jesus. And out of those, there's a group 70-ish that he... Trains and sends out and says, Go preach the kingdom, and does a whole bunch of stuff with. And then there's what we know as the 12. And this is what we usually refer to when we say the disciples. Isn't this is Jesus' inner circle? These are the ones he explains the parables to, these are the ones he gives special instructions to. But out of those 12, there's three who are with him at his most intimate moments when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to his crucifixion. The three that saw him raise the little girl from the dead in the private, privacy of the home. And he told not to tell anybody. By the way, when Jesus usually tells people not to tell somebody about it, they usually do. But that's another point. And now, Peter, James, and John are going to go with Jesus as he led them up a high mountain. Now, this mountain... We're not sure which one it is. And I kind of think that's a good thing, because we'd probably glorify the spot rather than glorify the person. But there are a couple of options that scholars have thought through. One is called Mount Tabor. There was a whole bunch of stuff in the Old Testament that had happened. Uh, it sits overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus would have taken his disciples from the Sea of Galilee up this high mountain, and this would have happened there. The other option is Mount Hermon, uh, and that is way up north, about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, And it's a much bigger mountain. You can see a little outline against the skyline from the Sea of Galilee area at this mountain. And so one mountain is a much bigger mountain, but it's extra far away. The other mountain is a little bit closer. Um, So you can take your pick on which one you want to view as, but it doesn't really matter because the point isn't which mountain it was, but which person. And so as Jesus, he takes them up the mountain where they were all alone. And he was transfigured... Before them, and this word "transfigured" is a fun word. Uh, the The word is actually uh, me- uh, I cannot even remember what it uh, exactly how to pronounce it. Uh, "Metamorpheo," "metamorpheo," and that sounds and means a little like "metamorphosis." "Metamorpheo" is the Greek word, and its meaning is "metamorphosis." It's a, it's a true change. It's a it's a not a uh, you know uh, I'm happy now. Now my face is going to change into sad, but it's a, and it's an actual change. It's, you know, if somebody had their face changed because they were going into witness protection program, or if, you know, something happened and uh, you had to have some surgery, you know, to do something, you're changing, and Jesus is transformed before them. He is metamorphosed before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before them, before the three Moses and Elijah or actually Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus so his 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 form changes and it's not it's it's not just the 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 whiteness of the clothes it's the shimmering it's the shining it's the it's the shining out the shining outness whenever we see angels out of heaven whenever we see God up in the mountaintop we have this glow we have this shining we have this 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 uh, otherworldly blindingness, because the the glory of God is so great that we cannot help to not look at it. It is so overpowering that we have to turn our face away from it, and it's just overpowering. And so there's this dazzlingness coming from Jesus, and appearing with him is Elijah and Moses. And usually, when you talk about these two, you're going to say Moses and Elijah, but I think Mark intentionally puts in his gospel Elijah first— to emphasize it just a little bit, but Elijah and Moses were considered the law and the prophets. They were considered the totality of everything God had brought up till now. Moses was the first deliverer of Israel, leading them out of Egypt. The first, uh, the leading them out of Egypt, the first deliverer God had used to save His people. He was the first of the prophets, and in Deuteronomy, there's a phrase that says. I am going to send another one like Moses who will, you are to look for another prophet like Moses. He will save you. You are to look for someone else, a prophet actually greater than Moses. You are to look for this one. And Elijah is completely associated with Israel's final salvation. And in Malachi, he, in Malachi 4, he talks about I am going to bring forth Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And so these things are happening. They see Moses. They see Elijah. And they see them sitting up there talking on the mountain with Jesus. And Mark is extremely brief in a lot of his stories. He's he's very—Mark he's would write action movies. He's very quick, very abrupt. Like, okay, now we're going to do this. Immediately this happened. Luke gives us a little more information and says that they were talking— about what was going to happen, mainly Jesus' suffering. Luke expounds this a little bit more and says, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his upcoming departure, his death, resurrection, and ascension, about what Jesus was going to go through. And so the disciples are sitting here seeing this. These two classic figures in Israel's history. These two people who God used to showcase, I am God, I will save. I am God, I will lead you. I will bring you out of all this. And now here are the two heroes of Israel's past encompassing everything that God has done. And the disciples are sitting there saying, all right, now's the time. So let's go on to verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, and see what the reaction is. So Peter now says to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, little side note, Jesus had ju- or Peter had just confessed Jesus is the Christ. And while it's not a true reduction of title, now to call him Rabbi as teacher. Teacher's a great title, but it's almost like taking him down a notch and saying, teacher... It's good for us to be here, the three of us—James, me, and, and John. Let's put up three shelters: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Jesus, or uh, Peter, James, and John are completely out of their minds. Here's Jesus shining with the glory of God. Here's Moses. Here's Elijah. By the way, I don't even know how they would know it's Moses and Elijah. It's not like they had a photograph or anything to compare them to. But that's beside the point. But it's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And they're sitting there saying, what do we do? I've got an idea. Let's let's put up three tents for you. Three shelters. Three booths that you can dwell in. And these aren't little temporary lean-tos that you can get out of the sun with. These are more substantial structures. Let's go. We're gonna put some structures up so that you guys can stay here with us. And there's, uh, there's some questions as to why Peter would want this to happen. There's, we could be thinking, Exodus from Egypt. We remember when God saved us and Moses led us out of Egypt, and we spent the entire 40 years of the wilderness wandering around. We lived in tents. In fact, there was a festival called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are all the same word. And at the the end of that feast, they remember the salvation of God. And Peter could be thinking to that there's also some phrases which in in uh, once and a couple times in 1 Samuel, a couple times in uh, 1 Kings and the 2 Chronicles, there's the phrase, each man must go to his own tent, which basically means get ready for battle. Get ready for war. We're going out to battle. So there could be some thought from Peter saying, alright, the kingdom time is here. We're going to take over these Romans. We're going to kick them out. Jesus is leading the way. Could be that Peter just wants to prolong this moment. Here is the majesty of God being shown. Let's just stay here. Or it could be Peter's trying to say, hey, let's let's set up headquarters right here, and from here we're going to go out. But whatever it is, Peter doesn't quite get what he's saying. And he's not truly rebuked, except Mark does make the statement. He didn't know what to say. So it wasn't the right thing. It wasn't that Jesus was going to remain here on this mountain all glorified. This is a temporarily lifted veil. This is a temporary situation. You are getting a preview, Peter, James, and John, of what's getting ready to happen. Go on to verse 7. So, then a cloud appeared, covered them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Now he's got Moses, and they've got Elijah, but God's not talking about either one of them. The Father is not saying, hey, remember all the things Moses wrote down? Listen to those words. Remember all the things that Elijah tried to get the the nation of Israel to do? Remember that stuff. No, he focuses in on the one who's supposed to be focused in on, the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And he says this, Is my son, whom I love, listen to him. And in biblical times, the word son is not just used necessarily biologically, but it's also used of the one who imitates you. It's the one who does exactly what you do. And so when we get the phrase, the son of David, David had a lot of offspring throughout the centuries. Sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, so on and so forth. But the title son of David was supposed to be used of someone who was going to be like David. The title son of Satan, Jesus called the Pharisees, not because they were biological offspring, but because they did what their quote-unquote father did. God out of heaven is saying, this is my son. He is does what I do. Jesus himself would say at times, what the Father does, I does. The Father's working, so am I. What he does, I follow through with. And so, if we are to be sons and daughters of God, we need to watch what Jesus does and we need to do that too. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And we can either take that as the disciples hadn't been listening, which sometimes they had and hadn't. Or we can say this is a command to say, remember, listen to him. Listen to this one. And this is right in the middle of three instances where Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. And in the in the this instance that just happened with Peter, Peter said, you ain't gonna do that. You're not gonna go to your death. And now, the Father is saying, "Listen to him. Listen up. Don't go against him. Do what he says." The cloud covering also brings us back into that that mindset of uh, the Israelites on Mount Sinai, when the Lord, when God descended onto the mountain with the cloud and spoke through Moses, spoke to Moses to deliver to the Israelites everything that they were supposed to do. And so now Peter, James, and John are getting this same type of atmosphere, the same type of thing going on with them. Now bound to verse eight, and we're going to go back to reality. Suddenly, they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. God is not having them reappear to lead Israel. This is Jesus' kingdom. He is the one who's going to go forth. He is the one who's going to suffer and die for our sins. He is the one who will be raised from the dead to bring life for all of us. I like what John Garland said in his commentary. Jesus' appearance bathed in divine glory attended by the saints of old, and heralded by the voice of God, may take away the sting of these announcements about suffering by offering assurance of ultimate vindication, but it doesn't remove the uh, the necessity of the hardship for him and all those who follow him. And so as we come down off the mountain, as Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain, we're reminded that the veil was temporary, But the suffering still must come first. And that brings us to our second point in the bulletin. Don't worry, we only have 12 points today. The second point in the bulletin. The suffering still must come first. Regardless of what Peter had in mind when he said, let's make some tents for you. Whether it was, maybe now you don't have to go to your suffering, Jesus. Maybe now we can just stay here on this mountaintop and be in this glory, you know, for a long time. They still had to come down. They still had to get back to reality, quote the now reality, because the true reality is not happening yet. And they are going to go back, and the true reality is Jesus is going to suffer first. And the disciples will suffer along with him. This is a for, uh, let's go on to verse 9. And here we've kind of got a, a non-disclosure agreement. Jesus says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had, been, had risen from the dead. Now, God had just told them to listen to him. This is the first thing he says to them after God says this. They actually keep this one. They don't tell anybody about it until after the resurrection. And now... They're sitting there wondering, what did he mean? They kept the matter to themselves, discussing about what risen from the dead meant. Hold on, okay. So, God says, listen to Jesus. Don't say anything until after he's risen from the dead. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah saves us. I just got through telling Jesus, Peter's thinking. Not that that he wasn't going to die. He wasn't going to suffer. And he told me to, you know, he called me almost Satan, told me to get behind him, to get out of his way. He's trying to go suffer. I don't know what's going on. What does it mean that the Messiah has to die first? Because you don't get risen from the dead unless you die. Let's go on to verse 11. And so they're asking him, all right, Jesus, we're confused. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And we can go back through the Old Testament and point out different scriptures about why Elijah is supposed to come first and all these things. But the teachers of the law had already been doing that for them. And Jesus doesn't actually correct them. But he does sit there. The question is not so much necessarily just why does Elijah have to come first, but they're trying to wrap their heads around the timeline for when the kingdom is going to come. Messiah is not supposed to die, but if the Messiah dies, does Elijah come before that? Does Elijah come after that? What's going on here? If we're already saved, why doesn't Elijah need to come? If you're getting ready to go die, where's Elijah at? And so in verse 12, Jesus states that they were correct in their thinking, To be sure, Jesus replied, Elijah does come first and restores all things. This is what we have in Malachi chapter 4. And Jesus is sitting there saying, yes, this is true. Now let me answer your question with another question, which Jesus does quite a bit throughout his ministry. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? So Elijah has to come first. The Son of Man also has to suffer and be rejected. And then Jesus says, all right, let's review. I tell you, Elijah has come. And Matthew makes it clear that they were t- he was talking about John the Baptist. And they have done everything to him they wished, just as it is written about him. Elijah had come. He got rejected, John the Baptist, He, They did whatever they wanted to him, ending up in his beheading, his execution. If Elijah comes and is supposed to restore everything, why did he get rejected? And then thus, now the Messiah comes, but everything's not prepped for him, he's going to be rejected too. And we've got all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering servant, that talk about Jesus having to suffer as uh, he was led like a lamb to be slaughtered. He will die for the sins of the people. All these things are prophesied because the nation is rejecting who Jesus is. They actually already rejected Elijah, and now they're going to reject Christ as well. In Malachi 4, it said... He will that the Elijah character is supposed to restore the hearts of their fathers to their children, the hearts of their children to their fathers. And in just a few short chapters, in chapter 13, Jesus is going to explicitly state that in the end times, the hearts of the children are going to turn against their fathers, and the hearts of the fathers are going to turn against their children. This is a rejection of what God is putting in place. Not an acceptance of. And so to restore all things. If, the, if, a, if John the Baptist had restored all things. Then things would be a little bit different. Maybe. But they rejected the forerunner. They will reject the one who's, who's coming. The Christ. The Messiah. And the last part of that Malachi 4, verse 6, is they will, he will restore it, and the hearts of the children will go to the fathers, the hearts of the fathers will go to the children, or else I will smite the land with a curse. It's supposed to keep God from continuing the curse of our sin, the curse that was initiated with Adam and Eve and has been perpetuated throughout the centuries, the curse that we are going against God as as a world. And so God is saying, come back to me. And until you do, you're living in the muck and mire of, of sin. You're living in a broken, fallen world. And I'm going to restore you to me. Otherwise, it's going to continue on. And we know that the nation of Israel we can see at the beginning of Acts, does not accept Christ as Lord. They do not accept Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah. And so just as it was written about John the Baptist, they did everything that was written about him, it's going to happen with Jesus as well. Brother will betray brother, father against child. Ultimately, in Mark 13, the temple, Jesus predicts the temple being destroyed. And so where does that leave the disciples? And where does that leave us? See, Jesus' suffering goes hand in hand, goes parallel, goes in tandem with his glory. Which means his glory goes hand in hand with his suffering. Jesus is not going to be glorified without the suffering that he knows he's going to go through. When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father... Please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is completely willing to go through all the suffering in order for the Father to be glorified, the Son to be glorified, the Spirit to be glorified, and the people to be saved. And those people are you and me. It was our sins that broke us. It was our sins that have separated us from God. It is your sin it is my sin that keeps us out of God's presence but it was Jesus righteousness that allows us to come back to him so that all who call on the name of Jesus may be saved. So here's your take home truth for today. While waiting for the glory of Christ's return, be prepared to follow your Savior's suffering. The disciples who told Jesus, don't do it, who tried to convince Jesus, suffering's not the good idea. We want the glory. We want the coming kingdom. These were also the same guys who later on were beheaded, were speared, were crucified, were crucified upside down, were hanged, were stoned, Only one of the twelve died of old age, of natural causes. The rest were martyred for their faith. They were willing to suffer. And the suffering is not hardships of life. The suffering is direct relation to our being identified with Christ. And the more you identify yourself with Christ to your friends, to your family, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, the more rejection you're going to get. Some are going to say, this sounds great, I want to accept this, tell me more about it. Some are going to say, get out of here, get lost, I'm going to pass you up for the promotion, I'm not going to see you at family reunions anymore, whatever it may be. The closer we identify ourselves with Christ— the closer, the more we will be rejected by those who want to reject Christ. And if we're not being rejected by anybody, then we either need to expand our circle of people who we're inter- interacting with, or we need to ask ourselves, do people understand who Christ is and why I identify with him, why I associate with Christ, why I say Christ is my savior? and i'm going to live the way he wants me to live the disciples suffered people across the world are suffering and we suffer too and there's different levels of suffering and different ways of suffering but the glory is coming the disciples, the john, james john and peter all got a glimpse of jesus divine glory of the light shining out from him. Not shining out from Moses. Not shining out from Elijah. not. But it was reflecting off of them. It was reflecting off everything around. But it was coming through Jesus. The, the mere glimpse of the glory. That they saw ahead. To what Jesus was going to be. And what he was going to bring. And in Romans 8.18 it says that... I consider all the present sufferings basically null and void and compared to the pending glory that's awaiting us. So while we're waiting for the glory of Christ's return, be prepared to follow your Savior's suffering. Please pray with me. God, our Father, we thank you again that you have given us salvation. You have brought us into your family. We, sinful people, have been able to be called sons and daughters. Lord, help us to to act like your children. Help us to love you, to love others. Give us boldness in declaring who you are. Make the call of our life that we will endure suffering for the sake of the gospel and that our whole lives would be given to you. Ever, only, all, all, for you, and it's your name we pray. Amen.
4: Let's sing that pledge of commitment together with two stanzas of "Take my life and let it be consecrated." Take my life and let. So hey.
0: Thank you, Michael. And if you'd like to pray with someone or just share uh, this morning, um, the elders and I will be up front. Feel free to come up. And if you're going to join us for our baptismal meeting, it'll be in the conference room. We're going to meet over there in just a few moments. Feel free to join us for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again, knowing that though we go through suffering in this world, the glory that is coming more than makes up for it. So help us, Father, to always keep our eyes to the future and our eyes on Christ. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
4: the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know All things well, for I know what e'er befalls me. Jesus, do with all.